wanting church, I'm honored to be here this morning. Um, I'd love to say a hello to everyone who's uh, in person or watching online. Uh, but three groups I would love to say a special hello to. One is to my college students over here and the right your left. Um, Connor Taralba is a college minister. His ministry here, my ministry, you two have a wonderful Overlap, beautiful partnership, and I love you guys. Um, my grad and career class, Sunday school class I teach, I think they're sitting, usually there's somewhere back over in this room. What's up, guys? Hope that class family, they're awesome. Um, and also, I have to give an annual hello to the balcony people. Hello, balcony people. My family usually sits right up there during this hour, Sunday mornings. Um, some of them don't realize it, but they're real flesh and blood people in that balcony. And Jesus loves them, we do too. And thanks again to Kurt Grass for the introduction this morning. Um, Jesus said in Luke 6.40, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Kurt's the kind of guy I want to be when I grow up, but then I realized this morning that uh, fashion sense, hairstylist, I could do a lot worse than being like Kurt Gross. But I'm honored this morning to get to talk about a Dr. Wells request, a topic near and dear to my heart. So the title of the message this morning is Eternal Life, Discover It, and Declare It. And we look in John chapter 4, Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman, but the topic we're going to look at is the topic of evangelism, sharing our faith. And I'll tell you a story. My youngest son, Ben, was with us in the last hour. Ben just graduated from Martin High School, ASD STEM Academy, getting ready to go off to college. He had a real cool internship at Lockheed Martin 
during high school, but this summer he needed a job to earn extra money for college, and he's a car hop at Sonic. And we've learned a few things about car hops at Sonic. Um, two things we've learned. One is that car hops depend on tips. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that about car hops at Sonic, but they depend on tips to make up to minimum wage and beyond. Um, and the other thing I didn't realize is how many interesting stories a car hop from Sonic would come home with at the end of a shift. They see a lot of stuff, um, and some of them I can't share in church. But I will share two recent stories that my son gave me permission to share about his experience as a car hop, both of them involving well-meaning Christians attempting to evangelize their sonic car hop. Okay? So two stories. This one happened last week. I'll keep details vague to protect anonymity, hopefully. But this happened last week. Set the scene. A relatively unfriendly, unengaged, middle-aged person. About a nine and a half dollar order gives them a ten dollar bill and says, keep the change. Forty-two cent tip. It's fine. It's fine. But with the ten dollar bill was a million dollar bill. A ten dollar bill and a million dollar bill. Now obviously, I, brought, I even bought the million dollar bill for show and tell. I don't need an armed guard because obviously it's fake. But on the back of the million dollar bill, guess what it is? You guessed it, it's a gospel presentation, the summary of the gospel message. It's actually a decent gospel summary. It's not bad. But it was given to him by a person who didn't engage him in any sort of a personal way with a kind of a crummy tip. 
And so he comes back into the restaurant and he, and he, and he walks in and he tells the other car hops, he said, I got a million dollar bill. And they smiled and laughed and one of the car hops said, is it the Jesus one? And he nodded and they all nodded because they had gotten the same million dollar bill at some point. Here's another story. A regular customer comes in who has a good reputation for just being friendly and kind. And my son gets to wait on him. This is an older gentleman. The gentleman makes eye contact, makes small talk. He has a kind smile, asks about my son personally. He gives my son exact change for his order, coins and everything. And then an extra $10 bill as a tip. That's a good tip. That's a real good tip at Sonic. And my son thinks him and he puts it away and, he, and, and before he drives off, he says, hey, I really want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I hope you have a great day. And he rolls up his window and he drives off. Now what's the moral of these two stories? The moral is tip your car hops. Especially Especially if you got the Jesus fish on the back of your car. But, but seriously, both of these people probably knew the Lord. Both of them felt a duty to share Christ with people they encountered with their sonic car hop. But which one did it in a more helpful way? His brothers and sisters, our goal is to be helpful to a non-Christian world who needs and I'm going to argue in a minute once to hear the good news about Jesus. So Dr. Wiles is in the middle of this sermon series on eternity. And what I want to say more than anything else First Baptist, is that nothing matters 
in this life more than knowing Jesus. He is the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. He's the king of all kings. He's the savior of all mankind. He's the one who will come back one day and right every wrong in this world. And nothing matters more than knowing him. And if you don't know him, I hope that you'll surrender your life to him. He offers reconciliation with God. He offers new life. He offers salvation and forgiveness. And you can have that even today. You don't have to want to earn it. You believe in Jesus, the Savior. You trust your life to Him, and He gives salvation to you. And if you haven't done that, you can do that today. But second only to knowing Jesus in this life is helping others know Him. So Dr. Walls has asked me to share about evangelism. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word that literally means gospel. Uh, it has as its root the word gospel. So evangelism is gospelizing or simply sharing or telling the good news. And I have a confession to make. I'm actually not a very good evangelist. I'm not a particularly good witness. Some of you are like, oh great, why is this guy talking to us about this topic. But seriously, I struggle with fear, struggle with insecurity, I struggle with motivation. But sometimes because I'm so grateful that Jesus saved me, I tell others about him. But I do want to tell you a story, because for the last 20 years, God's let me lead this ministry at UTA, across the street. And in the last decade, God has let us see some powerful, powerful results. So, a little bit of that backstory. The movement we've seen at UTA in the last 10 years 
took a while to start, so I came 20 years ago. We got pretty good pretty fast at filling rooms with college students. Pizza and a lot of invitations will fill a room with students. And so we had rooms that were full, but we weren't seeing a lot of lost students reached. Now, we would see students come to Christ because we're preaching the gospel, we're opening the Bible, and we'd see six or eight or ten students a year meet Jesus. We'd celebrate that. But compared to the tens of thousands who didn't know him, we were heartbroken. And so in 2011, a grassroots, grassroots group of students, grassroots movement among our students, and some of your students don't know this backstory, but a grassroots group of students began to pray for revival. And they set aside a little closet in our building, and they, as a prayer room, and we had a very pushy, uh, persuasive, excuse me, young woman who take a clipboard and she would sign up her friends to pray in half hour or one hour increments in that room, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday to Friday to pray for revival on campus. Fall of 2011. So 40 hours a week they were praying for revival. That next spring, we invited other campus ministries to join us and we started a week of prayer where for 72 hours, Monday night to Thursday night, students would play around the clock in one-hour shifts for revival on campus. The next year, 2012, we kept playing and something happened that, that, that Prayer for revival led to those students starting to share their faith more boldly. So we started sharing in many different ways. We started presenting the gospel more clearly in our meetings. Students were sharing personally. So we're going on campus in pairs and just talking to to people we didn't know, people we did know. But even that year, we didn't see many people come to Christ. But in the fall of 2013, 
10 years ago next month. In what I can only describe as God deciding to show up, the first week of school we saw three students give their life to Christ. And that energized the group of us, and they shared more boldly, they talked to more friends, they invited more people. And the next week, two more came to Christ. The next week, four more came to Christ. And every week for the whole year, we saw students come to Christ, over 80 students in all that year. And that summer we rejoiced, we, we recuperated, and we thought, God, you did it. Our faith is small, I don't know if you'll do it again. And the next year it started, two more the first week of school, two more the second week of school. Every week for a school year, we saw at least one student give their life to Christ, over 50 students. The next year, over 50 students. The next year, over 50 students. And for 10 years, Every week that school's been in session, I think we missed a few during COVID. But for 10 years in general, we've seen at least one student commit their life to Christ. Over 400 professions of faith in a decade across the street at UTA. I heard, praise God for it, some of my, I wasn't in the office last week, some of my staff told me that uh, a young woman prayed to receive Christ on campus last week. That made 58 this school year that we've seen, 58 professions of faith that we've seen. But here's the thing. It wasn't super Christians that shared the gospel and led to those people coming to Christ. It wasn't seminary graduates. Most of the time, it wasn't my ministry staff or staff members that shared the gospel. It was ordinary young men and women. And if you ask the students over here who've been part of our, our campus ministry, what they would tell you is how ordinary it seems. 
It's just a group of Christians who are reading the Bible together, worshiping together, having fun together. But they make sharing their faith a little higher priority than they ever had before. And they've seen God do a little more than we ever expected. Ordinary Christians. The historian Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism and the Early Church, says this. The explosive growth in the early church was in reality accomplished by the means of informal missionaries, that is, Christian lay people, not trained preachers and evangelists. They shared within their circle of influence, and it turned the world upside down. When I talk to older Christians, sometimes they'll express to me pessimistically Something like this. Young people today, they're just not interested in spiritual things. Not coming to church. And it's true, Gen Z is the least religious generation in American history. But they say young people just aren't interested, or they'll say something like, you know, the culture is hostile to Christianity. There's so much more hostility than there's ever been. But in our scripture passage today, Jesus is going to say, in talking with some Jews who thought that the Samaritans were closed to the truth and hostile to the truth, he's going to tell those Jews, open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. So we got a choice. We can either believe what our pessimistic eyes tell us about how open our neighbors, our friends, our family members are to the gospel, or we can believe Jesus. And I want to choose to believe Jesus. 
that there are people hungry for the gospel in our city, in our workplaces, in our families. I posted on Facebook a couple days ago the question, what most intimidates, distracts, or hinders you from sharing your faith with others? And a number of you chimed in. Thank you for doing that. I'll read some of what people said. I'll summarize some of what people said. Some people said, I get busy and distracted. I do too. Just doesn't cross my mind sometimes to share my faith. A lot of people said I just struggle with apathy and motivation. Been there. Some people say, I, somebody said, I just assume everybody in Arlington's already heard the gospel. If they were interested, they already know what they need to know. Somebody said, I fear I won't have answers to their hard questions. I've had that fear before. Somebody said, several people said, I don't want to hurt a relationship that I have with another person. Some people said the fear of rejection Several people said something like, I have anxiety that the conversation will turn into a debate. But here's my message today. Church, we can do this. And the world needs us to share our faith. The world needs us to share this message. We are earthen vessels, jars of clay entrusted, filled with the treasure that is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want us to leave our light under a bushel. He wants it on a hill shining to one that desperately needs to see him. Herbert Locklear, Scottish evangelist, said, Evangelism is the lifeblood of the church. We must either evangelize or fossilize. 
imagine what could happen between the last service and this service will be a thousand over a thousand adults gathered this morning. Imagine what could happen if several hundred of us became a little more aware of the spiritual need around us. Just a little more broken hearted for the lost. A little more open to engage in spiritual conversations and a little more courageous to share the truth. What could God do if a few hundred of us did that? And the thing is, it's our job. It's not the job of the staff at First Baptist Church Arlington to evangelize Arlington. It's the job of every believer in Arlington to share the gospel in our city, in our workplaces, in our families. Jesus didn't give the Great Commission to a select few, he gave it to all of us. Follow a little logic with me. When I interact with college students, one of the questions they're wrestling is, with is, what do I do with my life? What do I give my life to? What's my purpose? What direction do I want to have? Well, when Jesus came to earth, he described his purpose. Luke 19, 10. Remember it? He said, I have come to seek and to save that which is Lost. Now follow some logic here. If I say I'm a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, and I say I want to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and what he what he says is what I do and where he goes I want to go. And if I say I want to be a disciple of Jesus, but Jesus says his whole purpose is to be part of seeking and saving the lost. And I say I want to follow Jesus and Jesus' purpose 
is to go after the lost. And I'll say I'll follow Jesus. Can you follow the logic here? Then part of the reason God saved, put me on this earth, and saved me part of the reason he put you on this earth and saved you is so you can be part of his mission of seeking and saving the lost. So the message title this morning, Eternal Life, Discover It and Declare It before you can share the gospel, you have to first know the gospel. The good news is, if you know enough to be saved, if you know enough to trust Christ as Savior, you know enough to tell somebody how to be, trust Christ as Savior. But sometimes we need a reminder. And here's the reminder. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about us as God's beloved creation turning our backs on him in rebellion and sin and out of his mercy, kindness, and love, he didn't want to leave us cut off. He comes to earth as the man Jesus, fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect life none of us could do. He dies on the cross, a sacrificial death for our sin. He rises in victory, victory over sin, over Satan, over death itself. And he offers that life that he bought and paid for to anyone who would turn from living for them, themselves and live for him. If you're here this morning and there hasn't been a point in your life where you've decisively said, Jesus, I turn from sin and turn to you, you can do that this morning. Jesus is as far away as a simple prayer of repentance and faith. And if you've never done that, you can do that this morning. You can do that in the service. You can do that in the prayer time at the end. And Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I turn from sin, I believe in you, I want to follow you, he'll save you. 
That's the gospel. Every person has to make an individual personal decision. But after we know it, we have the privilege of declaring it. So in John chapter 4, in John chapter 4, Jesus engages an unlikely convert. She is a non-Jewish Samaritan woman in an illicit relationship. So, let's take a look. John chapter 4. Normally when we read from the Gospels in our church, we stand, but this morning, because it's a long passage and I want to offer some commentary as we go, uh, we'll stay seated, but uh, normally we would stand. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's go. Now Jesus learned that Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was in fact not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. I like to note here that even though Jesus was the sinless Son of God, he was all the time equipping and training others to do ministry. He didn't do all the ministry himself. He equipped others to do it. It wasn't him who was baptized. It was his disciples who were doing the baptizing. See, church, it's not the pastors, the ministers of this church's job to do ministry in our community. It's our job. We're all ministers of reconciliation. Scripture says, so verse 3, so he left Judea, he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Well, here's the thing. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, religious Jews went around the region of Samaria. See, there's a Jewish region in the north, Galilee, Jewish region in the south, Judea, and in the middle was Samaria, and religious Jews would go around Samaria 
instead of through it to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. She just didn't have to go through Samaria, but he was compelled by the Spirit of God to go through Samaria. And the lesson for us is this. God will give us opportunities to share if we ask Him and listen. If we ask Him for opportunities to share and listen. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Um, as an aside, I love that John notes that Jesus' physical condition, how was Jesus here? He was tired. I love that John, even though John exalts the fact that Jesus was divine, that he was God, he also points out his humanity. He got tired. You see, in order to reconcile humanity with God, Jesus had to be both human and divine. And John points out both. It's a beautiful piece of theology. Verse 7. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John puts the note in, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Notice two things. Jesus was both unusually kind to the Samaritan woman. He engaged her in conversation. Two people who normally wouldn't talk, but he crossed that barrier and he just engaged her. He dignified her humanity. He was kind to her. And the second thing he did, and this is important, he asked questions. 
Jesus was a master question asker. And sometimes we get a notion that evangelism, good evangelism, is me getting all the words out. And they just need to receive all the words of truth that I'm going to pour out on them. But the way Jesus engaged people often was with questions, and the way a good evangelist engages people around us is by asking good questions, by exploring the soul of the other person. It shows that you care about them. It shows that you care about their spiritual condition. It shows that you're curious about them. And people actually love to talk about themselves. So if you ask people about their spiritual life and their spiritual beliefs, often they're eager to tell you about it if you're not pushy with yours. Going on, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Is there also his sons and his livestock? I love that she's willing to push back against him. I love that she felt comfortable enough in the conversation to say, what are you talking about? But here's the thing, sometimes we're scared of pushback. We shy away from conversations because we're afraid of pushback. But here she's pushing back, not because she's closed, but because she's open. Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, 
The water I give them will become in them spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you said you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you with live with now is not your husband. So what you said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So, notice here, Jesus has a benefit that we don't have. He gets to play his all-knowing omniscience card. Right? We don't have that. But what we do have is the Spirit of God in us. And the Holy Spirit can lead us and give us words to say at the right time in, those, in these kinds of conversations. And, I, and if you'll notice, the woman has gone. She's changed. She's now asking, what, tell me, what is the right way to approach God? How should I truly worship God? She's gone from just open to spiritual things to now seeking answers. She's gone from open to seeking. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. The time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Worship what we do know for salvation will come from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, his worshipers 
must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, the Christ, Savior, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Church, do you realize that the first person that Jesus reveals that he is the promised Savior, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, the first person he reveals that to is a non-Jewish Samaritan woman in an illicit relationship. What does that say about God's heart for people who are on the outside, who are not yet part of the family? It tells us something about his heart that the first person he chooses is an outsider, not an insider. I love that about the story. Verse 27, trap up. Just then his disciples returned. They were surprised to find them talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? Then, Leaving a water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see the man who told me everything I did. Could this man be the Messiah? To point out the obvious, her first act as a believer in Jesus is to tell the whole town about Jesus. Verse 30, they came out from the town and they made their way toward him. As we finish the story, I want you to get a mental picture of the scene. Small village, few hundred yards on the edge of village, a well. These religious Jews who in their head have said, the Samaritans are closed to the truth. And they're here, but 
making their way from the village to the well is a whole village worth of Samaritans. With the hope, the expectation, the curiosity, I... Maybe this man is the savior of the world. And so Jesus is talking to people who say they're not ready and they're coming because they're ready. Okay? Got that scene in your head? They're walking this way. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Verse 34, as they're making their way to him. Then his disciples said to each other, Can anybody have brought him food to eat? Sorry, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But don't you people have a saying? Four more months and then the harvest. You know what that saying means? My, my dad's in agriculture. It means you plant your crop and then you harvest your crop, and in between, you get to relax. Four more months, and then the harvest means there's no hard work to do right now. There's no harvest here and now. Relax. And Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. Even now, as the Samaritans are making their way to him. Even now. The one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper are glad together. The skeptical disciples, like skeptical Christians like I can be sometimes, say, my neighbor, my family member, my co-worker is probably not interested. And Jesus says, open your eyes, the fields are ripe for harvest and church. We get to tell them. The last thing I want to share with you is maybe just some practical ways 
that I'd like to offer from a couple decades of training young adults to share their faith, some practical habits to grow our ability to share our faith. Eight practical habits to grow your evangelism. So, to jump in, number one, eight practical habits. Number one, remember that evangelism is a privilege. It's a privilege. One little vow completely changes the meaning of a sentence. Get to and got to. If we say, I've got to do something, you know, I've got to mow the grass. I've got to clean my room. But I get to go out for a night on the town. I get to spend time with people that I love. That one little vow completely changes our mindset. And sometimes as Christians, we say, I get to worship Almighty God. I get to enjoy fellowship with other believers. But I ought to share my faith. I'm supposed to share my faith. I need to share my faith when really we're called ambassadors of Christ, a high privileged office and calling. We're called ministers of reconciliation. It's a privilege to get to represent King Jesus on earth. Don't forget that. Number two, walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. See, when I interact with young adults, many will say, I don't have what it takes. I can't do that. I'm an introvert. I'm bashful, I'm shy, I'm, I'm, it's, I, don't, I don't have what it takes. There's insecurity. But in Matthew 4:19, Jesus makes a promise. Jesus says, come, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Have you ever unpacked what that means? See, Jesus doesn't go out and find fishers of men and say, hey, why don't you just join my team? He goes out and he makes a promise. He says, if you will follow me, you may not feel equipped, you may not feel ready, but if you will follow me, 
I will do the hard work in you to break your heart, to grow your skills, to give you the confidence, to give you the opportunities. I will make you into a fisherman. Your job, my job, is to follow him. It's a bigger evangelism starts with intimacy with Jesus and abiding in Jesus. If you don't start your day in prayer and Bible reading and abiding in Jesus, if you don't have a regular practice of repenting from sin and, and abiding in Jesus, David was a UTA student years ago. He, when I met him his freshman year, struggled so profoundly with social anxiety, his hands would shake when he met new people, and he couldn't make eye contact. But he loved Jesus. And so he started getting involved in ministry on campus. He even started sharing his faith with strangers and with friends and with international students. And this young guy with social anxiety, by the time he had graduated, had led several of his friends to Christ. Because he walked with Jesus. Number three, feel the urgency. In this series on eternity, we've talked about the harsh reality that every person will die and face God in judgment. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that. And each person will face one of two eternal destinations. It's a heartbreaking reality. And it should sink into our bones and motivate us to let others know. Number four, pray. Pray every day. Now, how should we pray, my friend? Paul Wister, he suggests Praying for Bob. Who in the world is Bob? Bob's an acronym. Burden for the lost. Opportunity to witness. And boldness to proclaim Christ. So what if every day you made a habit of praying for Bob? First, a burden for
completely lost. What if you started it just on a post-it note somewhere you kept with your Bible a list of five to seven not yet Christians who were in your life and you prayed every day by name for them. You prayed for the lost by name. What if you prayed every day for an opportunity to witness? God, today give me a chance to share with somebody. And you just prayed every day, God, give me at least one chance to have some kind of spiritual conversation with somebody and three boldness that when that opportunity comes up, we'd walk through the door and we'd share. So pray for Bob. Now, why do you think prayer is powerful? I'll give you two reasons that praying for the lost is powerful. One, it's powerful because God answers prayers. Like a supernatural thing happens when we pray and God often will choose to move. But a second thing that happens is prayer opens my eyes. There's a, there's a phenomenon called red car syndrome. Do you know red car syndrome? You buy a car and you think nobody has this car in this color except me. And then you get on the highway, and what's the first thing you start noticing everywhere? That car in that color. Well, guess what happens when you start praying every day for the lost? You start seeing everywhere lost and sometimes God shows you doors you wouldn't have noticed if you weren't praying. Number five just be open about your faith Talk openly about spiritual things. Um, one of the ways we say it in our ministry is fly the Jesus flag early. See, church, sometimes as Christians, we have an unhelpful tendency to filter what we say 
around people we know aren't Christians. See, Stenham dinner table conversation is pretty lively. We talk about church, we talk about ministry, we talk about the Bible, we talk about theology, current events, like there's no topic that's off limits, we just, we're all curious, so we just, like, conversation flows. But I realized real quickly that when I, when I was around Christian people, we might, I might talk about those things, but I would put up this wall and not talk about those things when I was with non-Christian friends. I would filter. And what can happen is you can meet somebody, a college student can make a new friend, and they can say, well, I don't want to mess things up by talking about Jesus too early. And they can have a friend, you can have a friend for nine months, and maybe after nine months you get up the courage and you say something real sheepish like this. Um, I just wanted to let you know that the most important thing to me in the world is my faith in Jesus. And they go, really? Because we've known each other nine months and you've never said that before. So church, there's value in just being, if you love Jesus, be yourself. Just be willing to talk about what God's teaching you, what you're reading in your Bible, your experience at church. And sometimes God, because you're open, opens doors. A story to that effect, my, my wife Teresa, when the kids were really young, they were in elementary school, and she became burdened for the other moms of like first, kindergarten and first graders, like our boys were at the time. And we realized we that spiritual things just were never coming into the conversation. And we had this realization, what if we just talked around our non-Christian friends the way we talked around our Christian friends? So standing around the school a couple weeks later, she made an offhand comment to one of the women about how she read her Bible that morning. And the woman who's Jewish, had grown up Jewish, kind of secular Jewish, said, 
That's really interesting. I've always wanted to read the Bible, but I never knew how to get started. I guess you can help coach me on how to read the Bible, could you? And she said, I think I could do that. And another woman who was nearby said, I've had the same thing. I didn't know where to get started. Is there any chance we could, like, do it together? And she, yes, we could do that. And that birth, this women's Bible, says still is going today. But out of that, several women who didn't know Christ met Christ. Um, I love, we saw this week Jen Staley, who's on a church staff. Jen was a woman who joined that Bible study because Teresa was just herself, and Jen met Christ through that Bible study. She's on our church staff now. Be yourself, love Jesus, and be yourself. Number six, ask questions. This is a practical skill in evangelism. You should train yourself on this skill. You should, there's great books on how to ask good questions. The thing is, what you want to be is a doctor of the soul. See, have you ever been in public and somebody else tries to evangelize you and they won't let you get a word in edgewise to say, actually, I'm already a Christian because you're just talking, 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 talking. I've had that happen to me. You can't, you gotta interrupt them. 90% of bad interactions are because the evangelist isn't respectful isn't listening, and isn't curious. Everybody's favorite topic of conversation is themselves. People feel respected when you ask sincere questions. So we just teach our students to ask things like, hey, are you religious? Is that something you're comfortable talking about? They feel respected. They feel like you're asking permission. What's your spiritual background? What, what was it like for you growing up? What does it look like for you now? And what do you think is most important in life? What do you think happens when we die? What do you think's on the other side? What does it take to go to heaven? What do you, what do you believe it takes to get to heaven? 
You felt close to God or far from God right now in your life? Hey, could I share something with you that I've learned about having a relationship with God? Oftentimes after you've listened to them, they're eager to listen to you. Number seven, next to last one, share the gospel. See, there's a lot of things we can think, we can say, and we think we're sharing the gospel, but we're not. Because the gospel's about the work of Jesus, but sometimes we can share religion instead of Jesus. We can say, they can say, I really want to get back into church, and we can say, yeah, it'd be good for you to get back in church. Instead of saying, yeah, church is important, but what's really important Jesus. Yeah, we can teach morality. Somebody can say, yeah, I, I, I really need to clean my life up so I can get back right with God. And we'll say, yeah, hey, your life's kind of messy. Your life's kind of screwed up. You need to fix that. Instead of saying, you know, Jesus takes us as we are, and what's most important is that you turn to him, not that you, not, not that you clean yourself up first. Sometimes we can share our experience. I stood up during a church service, I walked down an aisle, I prayed a prayer, and we never mentioned his name. So talk about Jesus. Focus on the gospel, not secondary issues, not denominations, not politics, not elite. Evolution, not end times. Talk about Jesus. And number eight, last. Just do it. We call this Nike evangelism. See, we never get comfortable sharing our faith until we get started sharing our faith. Will it be awkward? Yeah, sometimes. Will it fail? Yeah, sometimes. Joseph is our newest intern uh, on our ministry staff at UTA, and he met 
Christ three years ago as a student at UTA. And a few months after he came to Christ, he ran into my office, kind of panicked, almost in a sweat. And, and he, he seemed frustrated, and I'm like, dude, what's up? Calm down, what's up? And he's like, panicked, he's like, oh. I just shared the gospel with the guy, and I, I did so bad. I messed everything up. It, it was really awkward. The way I presented the gospel wasn't clear at all. He's, he's all flustered. I said, oh, man, what happened? Did the guy get mad? Did he get upset? He's like... Oh, he prayed to receive Christ. But I did so bad. You see, awkward conversations can change lives. And we're afraid of an awkward conversation. But it takes conversations like that to see people meet Jesus. So let's have the courage to have conversations like that. So final exhortation, church, we can do this. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to lead somebody else to be saved. I pray we'd be more burdened, more resolved to live an outward-focused, evangelistic life. C.T. Studd was a British athlete, professional athlete, turned missionary to China. And he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's live a life that counts for eternity. So as we close, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you can do that today. You can do it when I pray in a minute. I'll even pray for you if you're ready to do that. You can just indicate that silently to Jesus in prayer. He loves you. He wants you to turn to him. And for believers... What does God want you to do practically in your life? To live a life that points others to Him.
consider that as we see, as we pray, and then as we see. Let's pray. Father, the name of Jesus, the one who left the comforts of heaven, who came down to this broken, awkward, difficult world, to do the hard work of ministry to the one who lived the perfect life we could live, died the death we deserve to die, but rose from death to conquer Satan's sin and death for us. In the name of Jesus, we come to you and I pray that this church, including myself, that we would be more aware of the desperate spiritual need around us more in love with the Jesus who saved us and offers to save them. More open to engage our friends, neighbors, and family. More bold to do it. God, I believe this week there will be spiritual fruit from the courage and obedience of people in this room. May it be so. And if, Father, anybody in this room has never bowed their knee to you, said, Christ save me, I pray they know right now they can say, Christ save me. And you would be faithful and you would do it. In your name, Jesus, we pray.